I reckon most of us have days when it feels like the bings and the buzzers are out of control. Uh, the first is the alarm pulling us up out of our sleep. And from that point on, uh, the notifications and alerts take over. In our home, the fridge beeps, uh, the kettle and the washing machine beep. And then there's the phones, tablets and laptops. And it feel like every few minutes something is asking for your attention. Uh, when a, one of the phones rings or buzzes, the kids jump to it. They want to find it and bring it, to, bring it over. And most of the time, though, I'd, I'd be happy to ignore it. Uh, one of the skills some of us need to learn in 2024 is how to get notifications under control. Uh, last year, I started getting some of these notifications under control. One of the tricks I learned was on Saturday, on my day off, almost nothing gets through. If you call or text me on Saturday, unless you are one of the very select few, nothing's going to happen. My phone won't buzz, no sounds. I, you can leave me a message if you need me. I'll get back to you at some point. But I worked out how to not allow the phone to take over my rest time. One of the problems with all the noise from notifications is we find it hard to hear the important things. It makes the same noise whether it's an advertiser trying to get your attention or it's someone you actually deeply care for wanting to talk with you. This morning you need to listen. Uh, You need to put your phone in Do Not Disturb because there are two important voices for us to hear. Today we're listening to two significant voices who tell us who Jesus is. Uh, In these opening bits of Matthew's biography of Jesus, which we've been listening to for the last few weeks... We've heard of Jesus, first of all, his genealogical origins, his family tree. We've heard of his geographical origin. He was born in Bethlehem, then found refuge in Egypt before being called out and settling in the despised town of Nazareth. This morning, it's his theological origin. Now, of course, those divisions, genealogy, geography, theology, it's a bit artificial. There's overlap in all three. But it is one way of getting our heads around these first three chapters of Matthew's gospel, this intro, if you like, to his biography of Jesus. And today we're we're zooming in, we're listening up for the theological or divine origin of Jesus. And the first verse we hear is the voice of John the baptizer. So look at verse 1. So Matthew chapter 3 Verse 1, in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. John's clothes were made of camel's hair and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. John shows up looking like a prophet and sounding like a prophet. If it walks like a duck, talks like a duck, guess what it is? John's fashion choice, he's wearing the uniform of Old Testament prophets, particularly it's what Elijah wore. 2 Kings chapter 1, King Ahaziah knows his messengers have had a run-in with Elijah because of the clothes he was wearing. So why is that significant? Why does Matthew tell us about John's uniform? Well, because of Malachi 4. Remember from before Christmas, Malachi, the last book of the prophets, Malachi says Elijah shows up calling God's people to repentance. Elijah will show up before the day of the Lord. 
Matthew tells us about John's clothes because he wants us to listen, to pay attention. Because that day, the day of the Lord, the day God shows up, is near. And when God comes, it's not going to be good news, at least not good news for those who aren't ready, for those who haven't turned to God. So verse 5 People went out to him, that's John, from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan, confessing their sins. They were baptised by him in the Jordan River. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptising, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not think you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance. But after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear the threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. John's message is serious. Three times he warns of the fire of God's judgment. Uh, The first is in verse 10. The axe is swinging, cutting fruitless trees down at the roots and burning the branches. Uh, The second time it's linked to baptism, baptism in fire. And the third time, the picture is of separation, uh, separating seed from chaff. Uh, chaff is the useless husks of the wheat. It's useless for eating. Uh, it's what we turn into metamucil, useless for eating. So you separate the wheat and chaff and you burn the chaff. So there's three warnings of unquenchable fire. That's part of the picture of God's kingdom. Judgment is coming. But there's a way of escape for those who turn to God, who repent. And that's where John's baptism comes in. What's, what's baptism? Well, there are various washing rituals in the law of Moses, ways of making yourself clean so you can approach God. John is performing a kind of washing ritual, though it's not the same as any other we see in the Old Testament. But surely they are in people's minds as they go to the Jordan. This is some kind of washing, cleansing ritual. And honestly, we don't know what the ritual looked like. Did he dunk people in the river or pour or splash water on them? We don't know. The Bible doesn't say. The technique isn't important. What matters is this was some kind of washing ritual. But just as important as the water and the washing is the location. This is happening at the Jordan River. This is the place Israel was led by Joshua out of the wilderness and into the land of promise. It's kind of the the conclusion of what we read about earlier, passing through the Red Sea as they left Egypt, left slavery, they passed through the Jordan as they finally come home, come to the land of God's promise. John, taking people out to the water of the Jordan, the symbolism shouts at us. John is calling people to start over, to enjoy a new start with God, to to come again into the promised land, to be washed clean so they're ready for the coming kingdom of heaven. But the religious leaders don't think they need to start over. They think they're pretty good as it is. 
two groups of religious leaders come to check John out, the Sadducees and Pharisees. They're two different approaches to the Jewish religion, two approaches that on the outside look like they take God really seriously, but John sees straight through them. John calls them hypocrites. They're children of snakes, which is a huge call, particularly if you think about the serpent of Genesis 3. They're not children of Abraham, they're children of... They think their religion has connected them to God. But as we see through Matthew's gospel, they're corrupted by power and privilege. They've got no fruit. They don't behave like God's people. Lots of religion, but no love of God. No changed life. And so John warns them, the coming kingdom, the one who's coming after you, is going to mean fire for you. But he also holds out that other option, doesn't he? The one coming after John isn't only bringing fire, though he will, but he's also going to bring a better baptism than John's. Because this baptism isn't with water, but the Holy Spirit. Now, this is strange. What does it mean to be baptised or or washed with the Holy Spirit? Well, I think it's what was promised in Ezekiel 36. It's up on the screen. Have a listen. This is God's promise. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. So in Ezekiel 36, there's a water ritual. Water is sprinkled to purify on the outside. But Ezekiel promises something more. Something deeper, something inward, something permanent, the coming of God's spirit. A new heart and a new spirit. That's what baptism with the spirit means. Baptism is a metaphor, the spirit giving a new heart. A heart that loves God and is empowered to live God's way because God's spirit is within. It's not just religion on the outside, it's not just water on the outside, it's a spirit within. And John says, when this next one comes, the one following after him, that's what's going to happen. God's going to change his people from the inside. There are all kinds of ideas out there about what baptism with the Holy Spirit means, that maybe it's some kind of super Christian experience. But what does John say? He's talking about conversion, isn't he? Coming to Jesus. It's not an extra experience. It's for all who come to Christ. That's John's message. Are you listening? There are two options, the fire of judgment or the cleansing of baptism, turning to God and being made new. Then, one day, Jesus of Nazareth shows up and John knows instantly, it's here, it's on. Verse 13, then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptised by John But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this, to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. John said before that he's not even worthy to touch the coming one's shoes. He's not good enough to touch even the dirtiest thing that's been in contact with this holy one. And Jesus comes to him and says, wash me. Why? Why does Jesus need baptism? As we keep hearing about Jesus in Matthew's biography, 
we know he does not need to confess his sins. This baptism cannot be Jesus turning away from sin. But this goes back to the repentance thing that John's on about. Repentance is less about what you're turning from. It's more about what you're turning to or really who you're turning to. By being baptised, Jesus is replaying Israel's story. We saw this last week, didn't we? Jesus fled Herod's fury, finding refuge in Egypt. And then he's returned, out of Egypt I have called my son. Jesus replays, he redoes the history of Israel because he embodies true Israel. Jesus redoes Israel's story, but he does it right. So Jesus isn't turning from sin. He is sinless from birth because he's born of a virgin. God and humanity united in one person. Jesus is baptised not because he's turning from sin, but to show that he's always living toward God. As true Israel, Jesus always is faced towards God. He's always directed toward God. That's why he's baptised. And this then gets us to the most important bit. And it's taken us a while to get here, but this is the most important part of of Matthew 3. So listen closely. As Jesus is baptised, we get to see into the being of God. Verse 16. As soon as Jesus was baptised, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. As Jesus climbs up out of the riverbank, he sees something and he hears something. The way Matthew writes, it seems like this is private. It's just for Jesus. But we get a glimpse too. We get the story that tells us who Jesus is, who who God is. When God wants to reveal his being, the being of the the triune God, one God in three persons, uh, the Bible doesn't get into head-hurting philosophy and theology. Instead, it tells us a story. Do you want to know who Jesus is? As the Spirit descends and the voice declares, we find out. Who is Jesus? He is the beloved Son of the Father who's filled with the Spirit. He is the Spirit-empowered, beloved Son. That's it. You've now got the doctrine of the Trinity. You don't need to get into all that heady stuff. Just know this event. This event shows the truth. One God in three persons. You've got the Son coming out of the water. You've got the Spirit coming down and the Father declaring his love. That's what you need to know. Though, this event raises some questions, doesn't it? wonder what questions it's got for you. These are the ones it's got for me. Why does the Spirit appear as a dove? Why not say tongues of fire like on the day of Pentecost? I reckon it's because of a few images from Genesis. Uh, In Genesis 1, the Spirit of God hovers over the dark, unformed, untamed waters. It's mysterious, but whatever that imagery refers to, the Spirit is pictured in a bird-like way in Genesis 1. Then in Genesis 8, as things begin again after the flood, two doves are used to show God has made all things new. There's a new start for humanity. I reckon the spirit descending on Jesus, looking like a dove, reminds us that this is that same spirit who was active in creation. It's the same spirit who is active in recreation. 
the spirit who comes upon Jesus at his baptism, it's the same spirit that he's going to baptise his people with, the same spirit he gives his people, so we will be renewed, recreated, restored inwardly and spiritually. I think that's the, the significance of the dove imagery. What about the voice from heaven? Why does Jesus need to hear that? Doesn't he already know who he is? Well, like John the Baptist, the voice quotes from the Old Testament. The quote, this is my son, comes from Psalm 2. The with whom I am well pleased or delighted is from Isaiah 42. And one of the things the voice from heaven does by pulling together Psalm 2 and Isaiah 42 is he's saying Jesus is both the Messiah of Psalm 2, God's chosen king, and Jesus is the servant Isaiah speaks about. And in both of these, the voice from heaven points us to the cross. In Psalm 2, the kings of the nations are united against God and against his son. Uh, The servant of Isaiah 42, whom God delights in, is the same servant who is pierced for our transgressions in Isaiah 53. Uh, As far as we can tell, most of the original readers of the Old Testament, they didn't put these two things together. They didn't realise the suffering servant of Isaiah is the Christ. And so they expect that when the Christ comes, when the one after John the Baptist shows up, what he's going to do is to kick out the Romans and smash their enemies. Instead of what Jesus actually did, which is to defeat our enemies, but to do it on the cross as he takes our sin and shame upon himself. But there's more going on with the voice from heaven, isn't it? More going on than just saying that Jesus is the Christ who will suffer. Because we've been reading Matthew so far, haven't we? We've been reading the first two chapters. From everything else we've heard about Jesus, that although he's the son of David and the son of Abraham, he's also born of a virgin. He's also Emmanuel, God with us. And so when the voice from heaven says, this is my beloved son, he's saying more than Jesus is a blessed human being, but he's the eternal son of the Father. It can mean nothing less than true divinity, the true divinity of Jesus. Jesus really is God with us. Which brings us to our our final question. Well, then, why does Jesus need to have the Holy Spirit come upon him? If Jesus is God with us, God in the flesh, why does he need to have the Spirit come and remain upon him? We... We need God's spirit to change us from within, to strengthen us for mission and to live for Jesus. But Jesus is God. Why does he need the spirit? On one level, you could ask why he, why does he need the father's voice, father's voice of approval? He knew he was the beloved son of God. Why does he need the voice? Well, he doesn't need the voice, but we do. So part of the answer as to why the voice, why the spirit is for, is as much for our benefit as it is for Jesus. But I think there's more going on than that. And what we see at the baptism is that our triune God is always one in all his work. The Father and the Son do nothing without the perfecting work of the Spirit. So in creation, God speaks his creative word. Uh, From John chapter 1, we know the word is the second person of the Trinity. The word is the Son. And we've also got the Spirit hovering over the waters, perfecting the works of God. 
It's the same in salvation. The Father sends the Son in the power of the Spirit to bring about salvation and the kingdom of heaven. The Father and the Son do nothing without the Spirit. And so in a sense, Jesus needs the Spirit and the Father. Not need meaning that Christ is not true God of true God, that he is not himself divine, but need in the sense that the three persons are so united in the one God that you cannot have the one without the other. Why is this important? Why is this worth listening and paying attention to? If what we see in Jesus' baptism is true, that he is the beloved, spirit-empowered son of the Father, it means when we look at Jesus we see what God is really like. When we see Jesus' compassion, that's God. When we see Jesus give himself in love, that's God. When we see Jesus' power to heal and calm the storm, that's God. When we see Jesus, we see God. That's also important for salvation, for the cross. Uh, Some people claim the cross is immoral, that it's wrong for the father to punish an innocent person in the place of the guilty. The accusation is that's abusive, it's it's divine child abuse. And if Jesus is not true God, if if Jesus is not the eternally beloved son of, of the father, then that accusation is true. When the JWs next time they knock on your door, tell them that the Watchtower Society makes God a monster. But... If God is, sorry, if, if Jesus is eternally one with the Father, if the, the Father loving the Son in the unity of the Spirit, it means the cross is God giving Himself for our salvation. It's not a lesser or lower God on the cross. It's not a, a part of God on the cross. But it's true God, the eternal God in the person of the Son. Which means if we trust in Jesus, this Jesus on the cross, our salvation is secure. Remember, John came with a warning. The fire of God's judgment is coming. God's judgment is about to hit. One of the questions from John's message is when? Jesus didn't physically attack the Pharisees and Sadducees. He didn't line them up and burn them. Part of what John is pointing to is actually the cross. That at the cross, the fire of judgment falls on the beloved son. He takes the punishment so those who repent, who turn to God, can be forgiven. The cross shows us what the fire of God's judgment looks like. So we need to listen to God's warning. Because just like the religious people of his day, if we don't turn to God, Jesus will cut off the branches and throw them into the fire. But there's good news. Where's the safest place to be in a bushfire? It's where the fire's already been. It's on the burnt out land. It's the same with God's judgment. The safest place to be is where the fire has already been and that's in Christ, the one who was crucified, who took the fire of God for us. That's the good news, the message we need to hear. Don't allow noise and notifications to drown it out. God's judgment is coming. But it's already come for those who are in Jesus. So turn to God, turn to Jesus and receive his forgiveness. Let's pray. Father God, please open our ears. Take away the distractions that we might hear the warning and turn and trust in Jesus. 
Help us see and know the true Jesus, Jesus who is your beloved Son, who is filled with the Holy Spirit. Thank you for your promise to sprinkle all who trust in Jesus with clean water, to baptise us, to fill us with your Holy Spirit, that we might know you and live for your glory, bearing fruit that comes from repentance. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.